Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 32, The Storm Before the Calm, Religion Under Valens 360-379. to Now, after discussing the three Cappadocian fathers and that fourth Cappadocian, Eunomius of Sizicum, we finally have all the key players on the field, and it's time to resume our historical narrative. You may remember that we last left off sometime in the mid-360s with the Emperor's V, Valentinian and Valens. They commanded the western and eastern halves of the empire, respectively. Valentinian was generally pro-Nicene, but kept a pretty hands-off approach to ecclesiastical disputes. In fact, we know that when a large group of Homoian refugees appeared in his territory, he actually cleared out a pro-Nicene church so they would have a place to worship. He was, in other words, very much content to just try and keep everybody happy whilst the church figured out doctrinal disputes on their own time. Valens has loomed a bit larger in our story so far, After all, he's the one who split up Basil's territory, which resulted in a decrease in Basil's power, and Valens was a key figure in Gregory of Nyssa's exile from his diocese. All that being said, it is a matter of some debate just how anti-Nicene Valens actually was. His decision to split up the diocese of Caesarea was driven by political concerns. He was probably not sitting on his throne, scheming about how to reduce the power of one particular bishop who, let's be real, was important, but not that important in the grand scheme of things. And the charges against Gregory of Nyssa concerned corruption. They were brought up by a council of other bishops. Valens had plenty of reasons to be suspicious of Gregory that had nothing to do with theology. On the other hand, Valens definitely favored anti-Nicene theologians, and when he had the opportunity to install bishops, he made sure they were in line with his preferences. Remember Eudoxius, that bishop of Constantinople who helped Eunomius get set up with his bishopric in Sisicum after Aetius got the boot? Well, as soon as Eudoxius died, the pro-Nicene majority in Constantinople immediately nominated a bishop, whom Valens promptly exiled so that he wouldn't get in the way of Valens's choice, an anti-Nicene bishop who's the one who actually wound up getting the post. When Athanasius passed away, Valens did the same thing in Alexandria, running Athanasius's hand-picked successor out of town. Valens also sent a bunch of the monks and clergy of Alexandria, those who were loyal to Athanasius, to do forced labor in the mines, clearing out some of the old guard that might have resisted their new heretical bishop. Valens also had a habit of taking clergy he disliked and naming them to be members of the Curialis, Now, the Curialis was an elite group of citizens who were considered the leading men of their city. Now, that sounds pretty good, until you realize that being in the Curialis significantly increased your tax obligations, which was a pretty effective deterrent then, as it is now, to doing things the government dislikes. In other words, if you're too loud about a theology Valens doesn't like, he may just increase your tax bill. All of that sounds pretty bad. And the pro-Nicene certainly thought that Valens had it out for them. Remember, though, that Valens also sent Eunomius into his exile. 
It's possible that Valens thought the Pro-Nicenes and Eunomius were equally extreme and wanted to kick them all out to make room for a reasonable middle ground. Or who knows, maybe he just had a thing against Cappadocians. That would apply to all four of them. But emperors don't get to choose how their intentions are received. And Valens's reputation was forever tarnished by a tragedy that happened on his watch. Here's what happened. A large delegation of pro-Nicene clergy came to meet Valens and attempted to persuade him that, you know, Nicaea wasn't so bad, and hey man, if you could, like, stop exiling all our bishops, just, like, stop, that would be super cool. That's what they wanted to say, but they would never get their chance. Valens refused to meet with the group when they arrived and put them all on a boat to take them home. Then the boat caught fire mid-journey, and every single member of that delegation died. We simply do not have enough information to know if this was a deliberate tactic or just an awfully timed accident. For those on the side of Nicaea, who had already had enough of Valens' heavy-handed tactics, there was very little doubt that this was a deliberate escalation of his war against Orthodox doctrine. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote an oration savaging Valens for his brutal murder of faithful clerics who were trying to protect the true doctrine. But even in the face of this possible persecution, the Nicenes persisted. Their persistence was due to three factors. First, their deep-seated dedication to the truth as they saw it. Second, the fact that Valens was kind of busy. His reign was marked by multiple wars and rebellions that he was constantly having to put down. Just after Valens launched a big push into Syria to deal with the ever-lurking Persian Empire, a fellow named Procopius staged a revolt and declared himself Augustus. Procopius was a cousin of Julian the Apostate, and he emphasized his link to the beloved Constantinian family tree with promises to bring back the good old days. It's not entirely unlike the way that simply having the name Kennedy is a ticket to approval in American politics. Some families are just so beloved that being a part of them is a significant draw. By the way, Procopius is that rebel in whose face Eunomius had to flee out of his city, but Eunomius met with Procopius once or twice, and meeting with a popular dissident was enough to put him on Valens's naughty list. Now, Valens was apparently so distressed by this sudden war on two fronts that he considered ending his life. But he pulled himself together, marched his remaining forces back to Asia Minor, and defeated Procopius after a long siege battle. He had exactly five seconds to rest after this, because it turns out Procopius had made friends with a very prominent Gothic king named Ermonaric, who had been marching to his aid. When news reached the Goths that their ally was dead and the war was over, they said, oh, that's a shame. Well, it would be a waste not to do some pillaging after coming all this way, and they started mucking about in Thrace. Thrace being in modern-day Greece. So then, Valens had to run over to modern-day Greece and defeat them there, which he did. Apparently, the Goths did not like the way they had been treated. Valens was being rude to them just because they had allied with his opponent, invaded his empire, and pillaged his lands. Can you imagine? So they lodged a formal diplomatic protest against the way they had been treated and demanded an apology, to which Valens replied as follows. 
Turns out the Goths were very serious, and war was formally declared. Valens spent the next few years up in and around modern-day Germany, winning several campaigns against the Goths before they finally gave up and surrendered. Valens then got about three years of peace. But it wasn't really peace because tensions with Persia were flaring up over the country of Armenia. Rome had formally renounced its claim to rule Armenia, but Valens was thinking, you know, they could rule it anyway. So he was busy doing political intrigues and trying to assassinate unfavorable Armenian politicians and all that court intrigue stuff. This, by the way, is right around the time that Valens asked Basil to go on his mission to Armenia to constitute the church there. You can just imagine that the Persians really loved the way Valens was meddling in territory he had sworn not to meddle in, and war with Persia flared up again, forcing him to focus all his attention on that. There were also two revolts he had to put down during the Persian War, but we don't have time to get into that, because then who should he have to deal with again but the Goths? We have now come to the year 376, and the Huns are on the move. As powerful as the Gothic tribes were, they were no match for the burgeoning Huns, who had begun to push them out of their territory in modern-day Germany. With nowhere else to go, Gothic tribes began to cross the Danube River into the Roman Empire and asked for assistance. Valens granted them license to live in Roman territory, but his officials, rather prejudiced against these Goths who had so recently been pillaging all over the empire, treated them with cruelty, and vastly marked up prices of essentials like food and clothing to sell to the Goths. Incensed by their treatment, the Goths decided to ally with the Huns instead and help the Huns invade the empire, starting the Second Gothic War. With the Huns at their back, the Goths had much better luck against the Roman forces. They drove back into the heart of Thrace, and Valens would eventually die in the campaign against them at the Battle of Adrianople in 378. Now, Valens was by this point a very experienced military commander. So you might wonder just how could he have let himself be beaten so badly on that day? The answer? It was really, really, really hot. I'm not kidding. Ancient historians all record that the weather in Adrianople was unseasonably warm, and the Roman forces disintegrated under the pressure of the weather and a long battle. Actually, they hadn't been expecting to fight that day at all. The Romans and Goths were negotiating peace terms when a lone Roman unit, apparently driven mad by the heat, lost the plan and decided to just start attacking the Gothic forces. The Road to Nicaea, brought to you by Tropical Weather-Induced Madness. Aloha, neighbor. Aren't these warm, tropical vibes just delightful? I know my skin is just soaking them up. In fact, they're putting me in a mood. A mood for murders, fights, death, no more peace. If I have to stand in this heat for one more minute, I'm gonna go insane. Shoot with arrows, fight bad guys, get them dead now. Tropical weather-induced madness, because air conditioning hasn't been invented yet. In the ensuing fracas, Gothic forces continued to arrive while Roman forces melted under the combined heats of battle and the day. Valens was struck down, bringing an end to his reign. Now, why a bunch of Goths from modern-day Germany and Huns would handle hot weather better than a whole bunch of Roman soldiers who had recently been campaigning in Persia is beyond me. I like to imagine that Valens was just so tired of having to fight all the time 
that he just couldn't take it anymore. The heat was the straw that broke the metaphorical camel's back, perhaps the most consequential lack of air conditioning in ancient history. That's just my headcanon, though. That's not really a serious historical judgment. Regardless, the point is that Valens was a very busy guy and didn't actually have all that much time to spend harassing church officials that he didn't like. This led to the third reason the Nicene party survived. They had time to organize a response, especially by coordinating with sympathetic parties in the western half of the empire. No one was more instrumental in this work than Basil of Caesarea. He was busy coordinating with Athanasius and the Bishop of Rome, a guy named Damasus, to bring about some new church councils to overrule the disastrous eastern councils that had taken place under Constantius. But there were some pretty significant hiccups in this effort. While Basil wrote many letters to Athanasius attempting to gain his support, Athanasius, as far as we know, never once wrote back to Basil. It's a truly remarkable fact of history that even as Athanasius was trying to build a pro-Nicene consensus, he refused to work with the other greatest supporter of his cause. Why? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at the city of Antioch. Antioch has been in a long-simmering Episcopal feud since just after the Council of Nicaea. You may remember that Eustathius of Antioch was kicked out of his bishopric, after making some unfortunate comments about the Emperor Constantine's mother. Ever since then, the city had been divided. There was a remnant of Christians who were loyal to Eustathius and refused to recognize the imperial official bishop of the city. Even after Eustathius died, there were always dueling bishops vying for the allegiance of Antioch's citizenry, and different parts of the empire often recognized different candidates. The official bishop at this point in time was a guy named Meletius of Antioch. Meletius appears to have been originally allied with the moderate Homoian party, but quickly revealed his superpower of being able to annoy everybody. Shortly after his consecration, he gave a sermon on Proverbs 8. Now, by this point in the podcast, you probably know that everybody has something to say about Proverbs 8. The anti-Nicenes are always pointing to it. The pro-Nicenes are always giving interpretations of it. Everybody has an opinion on Proverbs 8. And Meletius of Antioch managed in his sermon to make everyone angry with him. The Homoians thought he had deserted them to become a Homoousian. The Homoousians thought that he was an equivocating Homoian not worth their time. He was then promptly sent into exile for his trouble. Now, Basil stood by Meletius, apparently seeing him as somebody of the same spirit, even when his foot was in his mouth. And this makes sense with Basil's general strategy. Basil spends a lot of time on diplomatic outreach to Homoiousians and the occasional Homoian. No doubt he thought Meletius would be a good ally to have in his corner. But Athanasius supported the other candidate for the See of Antioch, a guy named Paulinus. You might think this is a trivial matter. I mean, who cares who the bishop of some city is? It's just one city, right? Well, wrong. Antioch was one of the four biggest cities in the empire. Its only rivals were Rome, Constantinople, and Alexandria. The bishop of Antioch controlled a huge amount of territory and was therefore of enormous consequence. 
if you want to think about it this way, the Bishop of Antioch is senior bishop over about a quarter of the Roman Empire. Even if he's just one bishop, he's going to have a huge say in who that quarter of the bishops are going to be. And so both Athanasius and Basil knew that whomever was the Bishop of Antioch would have the ability to tip the scales of doctrinal controversy in one direction or another. And Athanasius apparently decided that if they couldn't agree on who that bishop should be, they had nothing more to say to each other. For comparison's sake, that would be like two political parties trying to compromise if they had the same policy position, but disagreed on about a quarter of the delegates that should sit in their parliament. You can see why that might cause a split. So Athanasius was not really an option for Basil's campaign. He was even less of an option after 373 when Athanasius died, after which he was most thoroughly unhelpful to the Nicene cause, at least in any temporal sense. Athanasius' death was perhaps the most surprising thing about his life, because it was the one thing his life had never been. Peaceful. The champion of orthodoxy, who had spent his life arguing with Ariomaniacs and getting exiled by emperors, died peacefully, at home, in his bed, surrounded by sympathetic friends and clergy. It's a really touching moment. Athanasius' personality was definitely an acquired taste for many of his contemporaries, but it's hard not to smile at the knowledge that after fighting so long and enduring so much, Athanasius was granted a moment of earthly peace before passing into an eternal one. With Athanasius gone, Basil had to turn to his other potential ally in the West, Damasus, Bishop of Rome. Damasus was a vocal and stalwart champion of Nicaea. There was just one problem. Nobody could stand the guy. Or at least Basil couldn't. He regarded Damasus as an insufferably arrogant know-nothing. Damasus, for his part, couldn't understand why Basil wouldn't recognize his authority as the Bishop of Rome, the heir to Peter, and therefore, obviously, the boss of everybody. This is another common theme in this time period. The Bishop of Rome assuming that he should have the last word on matters of church doctrine and law, while all the other bishops wonder who this guy thinks he is, and who made him the boss of everybody. It's a disagreement that lives on in the division between Roman Catholicism and, well, everybody else. That division would become clear in the 4th century over precisely the same matter that had divided Basil and Athanasius. Remember how Valens kicked Athanasius' successor out of Alexandria? Well, that successor was a guy named Peter, and he fled to the only place he knew would be safe, Rome. Well, okay, maybe not the only place. Probably anywhere in the Western Empire, Peter would be A-OK -okay and out of Valens' reach, but... Rome has good wine and pasta. You know, there are worse places to go into exile. Peter remembered that Basil supported the wrong candidate to be Bishop of Antioch, that wibbly-wobbly Homoian Meletius, instead of his beloved mentor Athanasius's pick, Paulinus. Peter slowly but surely turned Damasus against Basil. Damasus decided he needed to test Basil's orthodoxy. So he sent Basil a statement of faith that he was supposed to sign on to without changing a single word. Because, you know, obviously a single bishop had the authority to come up with a whole creed on his own and make every other bishop assent to it. Now, that statement is meant sarcastically if Basil is saying it, but it's meant sincerely if Damasus is the one saying it. 
at least as long as the bishop who is the boss of everybody is Damasus himself. So Basil responded with a letter addressed not to Damasus, but to one of his allies, in which he said, Okay, not quite like that. Basil said it in much more flowery and passive-aggressive terms. Basil talks about how he really wants to sign the letter, he would love to, but it wouldn't do any good. These controversies take time, you know? Plus, yeah, he's stuck in Armenia for the winter, and nobody could get through back to Rome anyway. Then he gets to the really biting part, and I quote, I do not look for anything worthwhile to result from letters. For the transmitted word is obviously, by nature, incapable of moving men. For there are many things to be said, many things to be heard from the other side, objections to be solved, one's own reasons to be advanced, none of which can be accomplished by the written word, inert and lifeless as it is, spread out upon the sheet of paper." End quote. Which, translated from well-educated aristocratic Greek, means something like, Look, buddy, you know just as well as I do that we aren't solving this controversy with a single letter. I have been fighting this battle for longer than you, and if you think you're going to install yourself as the sole judge of my orthodoxy, then let me tell you exactly where you can shove your creed. So that kind of brought things to a standstill. Then a year later, Basil's old homoousian mentor got exiled, and Basil tried to get Rome to intervene on his behalf. Damasus, still not over being rejected, replied by sending to Basil a statement of faith about the Trinity. He deliberately avoided the language of hypostases in his statement. Basil and the other Cappadocians, you remember, said that there were three hypostases in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit were three substantially existing things. They were not mere phantasms or aspects or epiphenomena. They weren't like smoke from a fire or reflection in a mirror. That was how Basil avoided modalism, by using the word hypostasis. But in the West, there was some suspicion of that language. So Damasus left it out because he wanted to see if Basil would take the bait and adhere to his preferred formula. Basil would not, and the matter was dead in the water. Then Damasus made the mistake of visiting with a super-duper heretical cleric, but not properly vetting his theological credentials. So Damasus wrote him a letter of approval based on... I don't know, probably the fact that he was just a nice guy to have a glass of wine with. Damasus then sent super heretical dude onto Antioch with his approval. That was bad enough for his reputation. But then he made a second mistake. He sent a letter retracting his approval of this guy to Paulinus. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal, Ben? He's admitting he made a mistake and he's fixing it. We would be better off if more people did that. Well, yes, you see, but in so doing, Damasus had officially taken sides in who the Bishop of Antioch should be, and taken sides against Basil. This was no longer just a matter of saying, I think this person should be the bishop. By sending him an official letter, Damasus was now treating Paulinus as the Bishop of Antioch over and against Meletius. Basil was furious, and sent some emissaries to Damasus to express his disapproval, which they did and then some. The emissaries got so mad that they began to insult Peter of Alexandria. P 
Peter had mistreated the pro-Nicenes from the beginning. Peter was wrong about who the real bishop of Antioch was. Peter smelled weird. Peter hated babies and puppies. The things went downhill from there as Basil and Damasus sent a series of statements to each other's churches, making demands they knew the other would not comply with. After continuing in this deeply unproductive fashion for about a year, they finally broke off all contact. The grand alliance between Rome and Caesarea was not to be. Now, that is a pretty depressing situation. Even more depressing was the fact that Basil would die just a few years later, his dreams unfulfilled and his hope of a great victory for Nicaea seemingly in the dustbin of history. Quite a tragic end for a man who had spent the majority of his 49 years working so hard to advance a victory he would never see. It was even more tragic because events were not nearly so hopeless as they must have seemed to him. Despite Damasus being a huge jerk, a number of Eastern bishops read his statement of faith and realized there was nothing in it that was heretical. In fact, there was a lot of stuff that was pretty solid. There appear to have been some regional councils in the East in which bishops signed on to the Creed of Damasus, often called the Tome of Damasus, in hopes of building that unified alliance. They weren't necessarily sold on Damasus's language, but they recognized the intent of his words as pro-Nicene. Ironically enough, the spirit of Basil and Athanasius lived on even when their concrete actions didn't live it out. Let's unite with people who agree with us in meaning, even if we don't quite agree with their word choices, or their politics, or who they think the Bishop of Antioch should be. Speaking of that bishop, even Meletius, in those brief periods when he wasn't being exiled in favor of Paulinus, well, he signed on to Damasus's creed too. Perhaps he knew that when you want to be recognized as the official bishop of a city, there are worse allies to have than the Bishop of Rome. So even though Damasus and Basil and Athanasius weren't going to be able to effect that grand universal council where everybody got on the same page, there was a big appetite among the bishops for just such a move. And soon, somebody will be coming on the scene who will be able to do just that. For, as we said earlier, Valens has died and his policy of appointing a whole bunch of anti-Nicene bishops has died with him. The new emperor of the East will be a guy named Theodosius, a very committed proponent of the Nicene cause and a very committed believer in church unity. All of a sudden, Constantinople, that den of anti-Nicene sentiment, is about to be ruled by an emperor of precisely the opposite temperament. Although Basil was not around to benefit from Theodosius's interest, he would find a very congenial bishop in the city just waiting to be put to use in the cause, Gregory of Nazianzus. What will happen when the great orator and the new emperor meet? That is the question we will answer next time, as we pass the few final exits on the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.